This week, we're going to be diving into a topic that hits very close to home for me and maybe some others here at the church. Because just this week, I was dealing with this very emotion, this very plague, as some would call it. But God shook me and woke me up. And tonight, I want to share what God has shown me. And, and it's about defeating discouragement. Defeating discouragement. You can be seated if you can. Are you familiar with Murphy's Law? Trust me, I, I know Murphy's Law very, very well. I, I mean, if anybody knows me in my younger years, you know that me and Murphy was best friends. Me and Murphy, we had sleepos together, you know. Uh, me and Murphy go way back because there was times where uh, Murphy and I was so close that uh, I would destroy things on accident here at the church. Uh, there was one time that I was in a rush to go do something for pastor, and I slid down the hallway that used to be right there, and I broke that pretty little lamp that was in that hallway. And when pastor asked me what happened, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Murphy did it. Murphy did it. There was another time, and I'll tell him myself, I don't mind, because he's probably done told everybody in the church already. But there was another time where he asked me to touch up some uh, touch up some paint in his office, and lo and behold, you know me, young, dumb, sometimes very ignorant. Uh, I, they had a five gallon bucket, and no one really ever told me how to shake a five gallon bucket. So, you know what I did? I went, and they told me to just go shake it. So okay, so I, I come out of the the AC closet back there, and I went. Back then, he had carpet in there, and I, I just went and just started shaking the bucket, you know? Well, the next thing I know, the whole lid comes off, and all of the paint is in his carpet. Let's just say that I thought I was going to die that day. And once again, I had to blame it on Murphy, because it was Murphy's fault, not mine. But are, are, are you really familiar with, with Murphy's Law? The original Murphy was an engineer who conducted an experiment to test human acceleration tolerances. Unfortunately for him, he installed 16 motion sensors the wrong way, leading to the now famous quotation, if anything can go wrong, it will. It will. I guess the corollary is also true that if anything can't go wrong, it will anyway. Here's some other laws that are blamed on poor Mr. Murphy. Left to themselves, things tend to go bad to worse. Matter will be damaged in a direct proportion to its value. You will never find a lost article until you replace it. Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? I, 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 if there's one thing I know for true, being married to my wife... Um, if you lose something, I promise you, if you go buy the new one that costs like $45, you're going to find it the next day. Whatever you lost, I promise you. 
Everything goes wrong all at once. The AC goes out. The stove goes out. Everything goes wrong at once. This is, this is stuff that's been blamed on Murphy's Law. And last one, if everything seems to be going well, you obviously overlooked something. You obviously overlooked something. But as we come to Nehemiah chapter 4, everything seems to be going wrong all at once. In chapter 1, we see that Nehemiah prayed. And in chapter 2, we see that God moved him from the prosperity of Persia to the desolation of Jerusalem. And last week, we were introduced to the wall workers and discovered in kingdom work, no one can do everything. Not one person can do everything, but it takes everyone doing something. Can I get a witness? It takes everybody doing something. And because some worked harder, Barak worked with more zeal than anybody else. And the construction project was really zipping along. I wish we had some workers in the back that had some really good zeal. And then we could get it done a whole lot quicker. We could get it done a whole lot quicker. But when it comes to chapter 4 of Nehemiah, this is where things start to get complicated. And this is where we're going to read our verse for tonight, Nehemiah chapter 4. And it says this, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said, In the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned at that? Tobiah, another person, the Ammonite, was just beside him and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes on the wall, he will surely break it down. Hear, O God, this is what Nehemiah says to them in a response and he says hear O God for we are despised turn their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives do not cover their guilt and let their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger and the presence of the builders so we see here that Murphy has showed up Mr. Murphy has showed up and reminds Nehemiah that when everything seems to be going right in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 and in verse chapter 3 and the wall is going up and everybody's in the same mind and same accord, something seems to begin to happen. The enemy tries to slip in and tries to throw his jeers at you and he throws his, his comments at you and at times you begin to overlook what God has done. The good things that God has done. This reminds me of a situation that took place a couple years ago in this very sanctuary. And it was after me and Lakin had had a great Saturday. We went fishing with my mother and father-in-law. And uh, we was over in New Roads. We got to hang out with her family. And Sunday morning came along. We got up 5 o'clock. And would you know that Mr. Murphy, my friend, showed up. We overslept the alarm, for starters. How many can sometimes sleep over the alarm? You can sleep, the, hit that little snooze button. And I woke up that morning with a, a splitting headache. And, and I had a frog in my throat. And I knew that I had to sing that day. So I just started out the morning pretty rough. And we got to the church and the media screens 
wasn't working. In fact, they were completely messed up and we had to fix them on the fly. And little did we know that there was also a, a lightning storm that would happen the night before that caused the lights to flicker. And then we had to redo all of the lights because they were flickering on and off. And, and shortly after that, Brother Jeff come up to me and he said, hey, uh, we're actually out of batteries. So what did I have to do? I had to go up to the Dollar General and go buy some batteries. And so it's just one thing after another just seemed to happen after having such a great day on Saturday. that It just seemed to just get in my spirit that it was just, I just thought it was going to be such a rough day. But I remember very clearly that that Sunday was the Sunday that we had almost 15 people baptized. It was that day that out of that frustration, and even though I had problems that was going on, and even though that there was things that was happening beyond my control, that the enemy tried to get in my mind and try to make me believe that it's going to be a very rough day. And at times, you probably can feel the same way. You get up, the tire's flat. You get to work, you're late, your boss is getting on you. And next thing you know, you forgot your lunch. It just turns out to be a rough day. But all along, there's something in the background that is happening. And that's God working on your behalf. Even in the midst of your struggle. Even in the midst of your trial. Even in the midst of when you think everything is going wrong. God is working on your behalf. It also sounds like the mother of eight children who came home one Saturday afternoon from her neighbor's house only to discover five of her youngest children huddled together in the living room intensely concentrating, concentrating on something. And as she slipped behind them and pulled one of them back and asked what they were doing, she couldn't believe her eyes. Smack dab in the middle of her kids were several baby skunks. She screamed at the top of her lungs, children, run, run, run. So each kid picked up a skunk and ran to their room. Man, as if things couldn't get any worse. All of a sudden, you got some baby skunks in your house, and it don't smell like it, that, that Bath and Body Works candle no more. It stinks, and you can't get that out. Therein, it proves this statement that if anything can go wrong, it certainly will. It certainly will. Oftentimes we try our hardest to make things go right, but by pure happenstance, things just can't go our way. It causes a wave of emotions, doubt and self and anger and sadness and other major issues to our mental state of mind. But did you know, did you know that there is an actual plague sweeping over the country today that goes along with these emotions that we feel. It's not the Rona virus. It's not the Beijing virus. It's not cancer. And it's not even the common cold, which some of you might have tonight. But it's this outbreak that can be just as deadly in the most dreaded disease known to man. It's called the epidemic of discouragement. Discouragement. How many in this place has ever been discouraged? Discouraged. It's this word that when you say it, it just brings this, this dark presence almost to it. When you say it, man, I'm discouraged. It just it brings this.
sense of, 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 not, of being worrisome and anxiety. In fact, there's a few statistics that is from 2022 that I found on the web about depression and suicide that correlate with the epidemic of discouragement. Major depression disorder is the most frequently, listen, the most frequently diagnosed depression type. The majority of people suffering from depression do not receive the right treatment. 1.9 million children are struggling with depression today. This is 2022. Men with depression are more likely to give up by giving up their life than often women do. Anyone, who can, anyone can become ill with depression. It can be anyone. 50% of all mental disorders start by the age of 14. And young people's suicide rates have escalated just this year by 56%. This is a plague that is coming against the church. This is a plague that is coming against this world of discouragement where the enemy wants to come in and make you believe that you can't get out. Make you believe that there is no way out. Make you believe that anxiety is going to wrap you up. Make you believe that the cares of this world is going to swallow you. It is something that we have to address. It is something that we have to address. It, this, this discouragement is not something new. In fact, in the early, I think it was the early 1940s, one of my favorite Christmas movies... It was called It's a Wonderful Life. The senior angel called for the lower ranking angel to go to earth to help George Bailey. And when Francis, the lower ranking angel, who is trying to earn his wings, asked what's wrong with George, is he sick? The senior angel, the senior angel replied, oh no, worse than that, he's discouraged. He's discouraged. What can be worse than being sick? Oftentimes it can be you're discouraged. You're discouraged. There's three things that make discouragement such a potent problem. Number one, it's universal. It can happen to anybody. Discouragement can happen to anybody. None of us are immune to discouragement. Every one of us has been known to be discouraged at times. Everyone you have ever known that has been discouraged at one time of another that, and that they, when they get discouraged, they become down and out. And you don't know how to help them because they're just down in the mully grubs. Number two that makes it so potent is that it's recurring. Being discouraged once does not give you the immunity to the disease. Just because, like they say, you get Rona once doesn't mean you're not going to get it again. I promise you, my wife can tell the tale. She's had it like four times. But discouragement, you can be discouraged over and over and over and over and over. In fact, you can even be discouraged by the fact that you're discouraged a lot. Because you don't understand why you're so discouraged. Is that true? Because I promise you, I've been there. I, man, I don't know what's happening to me. I'm so discouraged. Man, I'm always feeling this way. Number three, why it's so potent is that it's highly contagious. You ever been around somebody that's discouraged? Man, you just like you, you just want to build a wall and then run away. 
You want to build a wall and run away because discouragement spreads by even casual contact. People can become disheartened because you're discouraged. You can be, you can be bummed out because other people are bummed out. You ever sat in a table, sitting at dinner, and they're just sad or they're just discouraged and it's just like there's no conversation? It's dry. It's not a good feeling. It's not a good feeling because it can become contagious. This evening, we're going to focus on both the causes and the cures for discouragement. But first, we're going to look at the causes. One of the, two, the two main types of discouragement is one set of problems comes from the outside, and the other set of problems comes from the inside. We'll look first at the external causes of discouragement. You see, the wall workers in the book of Nehemiah were initially excited. They were initially excited in chapter 1. Two and three, they were excited to build the wall. They heard Nehemiah's vision. They heard that they were going to build a wall again around Israel. They were going to build a wall. And you know what? They were finally going to have their city back. And they started building. And they got together and they pulled all of the material together and they pulled all the tools together and they had great anticipation. They had great joy. And but then all of a sudden, something happened. All of a sudden, something happened. People started to talk. People started to be negative. People started to say, man, the work is too hard. Man, how are they ever going to build that? Man, that, that feat seems almost impossible. How in the world... Are they going to do it? Getting the work started on the wall was a major achievement, but keeping the workers working proved to be much more of an assignment. Someone had said in the, an excitement is a feeling that you get after a great idea hits you, but it's right before you realize what's wrong with it. What's wrong with it? Where God is at work, the enemy is often sometimes at work. When we... When we get in a, a bad situation, we think that the enemy is the only person at work in our life. But God, like I said, is on the other side working on your behalf as well. Rebeating, re, rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem was certainly no exception to this. Because when the people take kingdom priorities seriously, Satan stirs up the agitators to block the work of God. These, these enemies use two different types of forces to try to come against the Israelites. The first one was this word called ridicule. They started to ridicule the people of Israel in verses 1 and 2. Sanballat heard that they were building the wall and he became angry. and was greatly incensed and he started to ridicule the Jews. This is the first time, this is the third time in the book that we come across this man, Sanballat, who was Nehemiah's stiffest opposition. And every time we read about him, he is standing against the work of God. Rejecting and ridiculing everything that Nehemiah is trying to accomplish. I can only imagine that many of you maybe have this at work sometimes, that you have that one person. If you work in a, a big office, if you work out in the, the field, or maybe you work in a daycare, or maybe wherever you work, I'm sure you have that one person. Everybody knows that one person. 
that's always negative, that always has a problem, that always has an issue, that always likes to talk about the management, that always likes to just try to bring you down with them. And that's who this person was. That's who this Sanballat was in, in Nehemiah. He was the opposition to Nehemiah. It was this person that knew exactly how to get underneath the skin of Nehemiah. He knew exactly how to ridicule the Jews enough to make them be discouraged. Someone said that ridicule is the language of the devil. Those who can stand bravely when shot at will often collapse when they're laughed at. The enemy often insults the servants of God. Goliath, we see, ridiculed David when the shepherd boy met the giant with only a sling of his hand. And the soldiers mocked Jesus during his trial. And the crowd taunted him while he hung on a cross. The enemy often insults you and I in the most evil in the most worst ways, in our darkest hours at times. He likes to punch us in the gut. He likes to jeer that side, jeer us in the side and make us believe that we will never be delivered. Sanballat and his cronies had begun to ridicule the workers even before the work had started. In chapter 2, verse 19, they mocked and they ridiculed us, is what Nehemiah said. But here in chapter 4, he is making a speech before the army of Samaria, intensifying the power of ridicule. No, notice that he used the word feeble for workers. The word means withered and miserable. Next, he ridiculed the job that they were doing by asking four taunting questions. Will they restore the wall, almost very sarcastically, like somebody asking, like, are you really going to do that? Are you really going to go do this? Are you really going to accomplish this? That must have made the Samaritan army break out into laughter. How could a remnant of a feeble Jews hope to build a wall strong enough to protect the city from a mighty army? He asked this next question, will they really offer sacrifices this man was saying that it will take more than prayer and worship and a group of people to rebuild this city are they really are they really going to start to give sacrifices once this is built and then he asked this next question will they finish in a day suggests the workers had no idea how difficult the task was and how soon and how soon stopped that they were doing. And then he raised this last question to them. And he said, can they bring these stones back to life? Indicating that their building materials were so old and damaged that they couldn't possibly make a strong wall. These words of ridicule just ringed in the minds of the workers that were trying to build the wall back. And if, as if that those four questions wasn't enough, this other guy named Tobiah, I want to punch him in the nose. He starts to ridicule the workers when they started to say a joke to them like it was a joking matter. Imagine somebody just sitting on the side while you're trying to build something. Just sitting over there drinking their root beer, 
Mine, supposedly, they're supposed to be minding their own business, and you're trying to work. It's 115 degrees outside in Louisiana weather, and you're sitting there building something, whether it's a fence, whatever it is. And all of a sudden, he makes a joke. Man, you ain't going to build that. If a squirrel jumped on that thing, it would break. I want to walk up to that dude and punch him in the nose. Like, why don't you get up and help somebody? Come on. Like, seriously. This guy, Tobias, started to ridicule the workers and started to joke that surely this building is not going to be strong enough that if a fox climbed on it, that he would break down the walls of stone. You go back and you look at history, there's some archaeological excavations that found out that these walls were actually like nine foot thick. Wasn't no fox big enough to jump on that thing and break it. What was going on is that he was trying to ridicule them and he hoped that his sarcasm would make the builders cast some apprehensive glance on what they were doing. What he was trying to do was make them stop because he knew that if they completed that wall, he knew that if they completed that wall, then that feat alone would make them almost invincible. He knew that if that wall was built once more again around Jerusalem, then he knew that Jerusalem and the people of Israel would be almost unstoppable. This guy knew the history. This guy knew who the children of Israelites, who they were. And he had to stop it. And he did it. The enemy did it by trying to ridicule them. And oftentimes we have the same issue The enemy wants to ridicule you for you living for God. The enemy wants to ridicule you for trying to stand up for what you believe in. The enemy wants to ridicule you for believing what you believe. He wants to ridicule you that when you've stepped away from the addiction. He wants to make you believe that that surely this wall that you're building will fall again under the weight of the feet, but I come to tell you tonight that if you will stand firm and you will continue to build, and if you will turn aside from those that try to ridicule you and try to put their, their sword in your side and try to make you believe, and if you'll turn aside from the, the words that are ringing in your ears saying to stop, stop, that you'll never build it. If you'll walk away from the discouragement and you'll realize that Jesus is right here beside you waiting for you to build the wall waiting for you to build what he has called you to build we have to realize the enemy's attack and when we do that we can stand firm in what we believe when we realize that the enemy is trying to come against us and he's not for us then we can also make preparation to continue to build The second cause of external discouragement was repression. And we find this in verses 7 and 8. The enemies had moved from being bothered by the Jews to being very angry. They had plotted. They had plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against them. Warren Risby writes that God's people sometimes have difficulty Working together. But the people of the world have no problem uniting in opposition against the work of the Lord. Against the work of the Lord. 
So we move on to the internal causes of discouragement. Pressures from with from on the outside often create problems on the inside. Opposition outside the ranks can lead to depression on the inside. It wasn't the voice of the enemy that was the most per, per, pervasive. It wasn't the voice of the enemy that, what, that hurt the most, but it was the voice of God's own people that hurt the Israelites of that day. And just like today, it's so easily, it's so easy to internalize the words of the enemy and those that surround you even today. Maybe it's your family member, maybe it's your loved one, maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your wife that makes you believe that you can't do it or you can't go on. But I come to tell you that there's a God that loves you so much that's telling you to keep moving forward. That we cannot allow ourselves to internalize the things that even other people say. We cannot allow the enemy's voice in our ear to become something that is a part of us. I remember being a little younger, and I'll, I'll, I'll go in a little more into depth uh, later in this message, and I only have about 15 minutes left, but uh, I remember when I was a little bit younger, I had some things that was told to me at a young age. I, I was a, a lot bigger. I, of course, I'm, I'm big now, but uh, at, growing up, I wore husky pants, and I was a little bit big. And I remember getting picked on in school. I remember someone used to make fun of me for being fat. <laughs> Unfortunately, it just happens. Haters going to hate. So you know what? Sometimes I put them in headlocks. Sometimes I just told them like, hey, go away. You know, leave me alone. But I, I remember some of them words in my mind. And I remember I would internalize it. I, I would start to believe that. I was worthless at a young age. I would start to believe like, man, nobody's going to love me. No one's going to care about me. No one's going to really look at me and, and want to be uh, uh, someone that would be with me. And I remember, remember thinking that and I internalized that. And I had to, to deal with that as I got older. And of course, as I got older, my confidence level got a little bit more higher. And I was like, you know what? I'm good looking just like I am, you know? I'm good looking just... I'm good looking just like I am. I'm the best looking son my daddy's got. You know what? But, but at times, discouragement can come in when we internalize things that the enemy tries to say. The first cause of internal discouragement is fatigue. Fatigue. When you get tired, you start to be discouraged. When you are physically drained, it is easily to become discouraged at the slightest problem. It is also interesting to notice that when the workers became fatigued and discouraged, verse 6 says that the wall was built to half its height. Oftentimes when you're tired and you're discouraged and you're fatigued and you don't know what's going on in your life, sometimes you just need a nap. Sometimes you just need to go to sleep. Brother Jeremy's looking at me like I ain't never slept before. <laughs> but sometimes you got to go to sleep. Sometimes it takes, it takes rest to recuperate your body. It takes rest to recoup your mind. It takes rest at times to recoup from the discouragement that the, that the enemy tries to wear down on your life. When the newness wears off and the work becomes routine and boring, that is when we often become the most fatigued in 
our walk with God. When we, when we move past just getting that first initial experience of the Holy Ghost and, and, and we've moved past and we're trying to walk our walk with Jesus Christ, our, 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 our shield gets a little bloody at times. Our, our shield gets a little worn at times and it's easy to become fatigued and it's easy to become tired and it's easy to just let that shield down at times. And not oil the shield. It's easy to do that. But we have to remember that we're fighting a fight. And that fight is to get to the other side. And to bring as many as we can. We have to build the wall that God has called us to build. That Nehemiah is saying to his people. We have to build this wall. If you're feeling fatigued today, watch out. Because tiredness can lead to discouragement just this week I believe it was Monday I'm coming to a close just this week I, I was on Monday and I got back from vacation and I recently had got a new job and I, I honestly I'd gotten to uh, the industry that I was in about a year ago and and a couple months back I got laid off and it really just threw me for a loop and I started this new job it was a godsend I love I really do love my job Love what I'm doing. It's just uh, the industry that I'm in, I don't know very much about. Unfortunately, it's just a part of it. I'm in sales and I'm learning every single day. But I got down into the mullet grubs on Monday and I got back. I was tired. You know, coming back from vacation, you done took naps for eight days straight. And now you're just tired. You got to go to work. That, that alarm didn't stop. It just kept going. Five o'clock come Monday morning. And I had to get up and go to work. And I got tired. And. Tuesday rolled around and I worked from daylight to dust. And I remember calling Lake and I think it was yesterday. And I was like, I'm just tired. Man, I, I don't know what to do. I, I just can't get beyond this tiredness feeling. And I started to get down in myself like, man, is, is this job really for me? Like God gave me this job, but is this job really for me? Like, what should I do? Lakin, like, should I look for something else? Should I not look for something else? And all of a sudden, I remembered the message that God had laid on our heart to with this build. And I opened it up, and I read it again. And all of a sudden, God just like slapped me upside the head and said, You're tired, and you're fatigued, and you just need to get in my presence. And you need to hear what I'm trying to say. You cannot allow your mind to be so fatigued that you're frustrated that you're frustrated with where you are because that's the second thing that can happen when you're fatigued that you become frustrated you get tired and you get wearisome and you don't know exactly how to see your way out you don't know exactly how to get out of the mullet grubs you don't know exactly how to climb your way out of the place of where you are in the book, Scared to Life, Douglas Rumford cites a study that shows why we shouldn't let fear rule our lives. It says this, that 60% of our fears are totally unfounded. 20% are already behind us. 10% are so petty that they don't even make a difference. 5% are actually real, but we can't do anything about them. And the last 5% are real, but we can do something about them. There's things in our life that we can control, and there's things in our life that we can't control. There's things that come against us that we can't control, and there's things that we allow ourselves 
to get into that we can control. The things that we can control is our attitude. The thing that we can control is the way that our perspective looks at things. The things that we can control is how we respond to situations. The things that we can't control, you have to let them be what they are and let God work it out on the other side. We have to put our faith in Jesus Christ enough to realize that when we get fatigued and we can't do anything about it except just rest and let God do His thing, that we've got to let God do His thing. We've got to let God do His thing because some things are out of our control and we cannot do anything about it. Let me tell you definitely that discouragement is a curable disease. This is good news. That you don't have to live with this chronic condition anymore. And we can look at the three cures for discouragement. The first cure is to request God's help in your life. The first thing that you need to do is crawl down on your knees and say, God, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. I'm tired of trying to walk on my own. I'm tired and tired of talk on my own. God, I need your help. I cannot do this by myself. Nehemiah requested God's help in chapter 1 of Jerusalem. And in chapter 2, he prayed a popcorn prayer while he was in the presence of the king. And now in chapter 4, he prays two different times. And he looks up before launching out. And he prayed before proceeding. And he says, Hear, O God, for we are despised. I can't do this on my own, God. Turn their insults back on their own heads and give them all over to plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt and blot out their sins from their sight, for they have thrown insult at the face of your builders. God, I can't do nothing with them. I want to go over there and punch them in the face. But you know what? I'm going to turn them over to you. And I'm going to say, God, you do with them what you want to do. They're your children. They're your people. They're who you created. And you know what? I'm going to let you deal with them. I'm going to let you deal with them. This was quite a prayer. He wasn't praying for his enemies to become believers, but instead for God to just take care of them. The prayer wasn't often too nice, but it was understandable and it was honest. And I believe that God honored it because... Ultimately, God honors honesty when we're honest with him and we say that we can't do it on our own and we need him to step in. He didn't give lectures to the workers. He didn't organize a raiding party against the enemy. He just simply said, God, I need your help. God, I need your help. Here's a principle that we can learn from Nehemiah. When people talk against you, don't talk back. Just talk to God. Just talk to God. If people talk about you, just talk to God. And I promise you, it will work itself out. The second cure to, re, the second cure to discouragement is oftentimes we have to reorganize our priorities. We've got to realize that there's some things in our life that's getting in the way of what's really 
important. Nehemiah in, chapter, in verse 13 says, Therefore I stationed some of the people at the lowest point of the wall, at the exposed points, posting them by the families with their swords, spears, and bows. Because Nehemiah understood that if the family wasn't protected, then nothing else was going to be protected. Nehemiah understood that if I don't protect the families, then everything else is going to go and fall. This well will not get built. Nehemiah had already organized the people in chapter 3, but then he had to go reorganize the people because that is what it called for. That is what it called for. Sometimes you've just got to reorganize your priorities. Sometimes you just got to realize that, you know what, that might, might have been important six months ago, but now it's not as important. What I need right now is this in my life. I need God at the forefront. I need my family at church. It doesn't matter what else is going on. I've got to be there. When we're discouraged, one of the things that we can do is reorganize our poor priorities. You can look at our life and you can adopt a change in approach instead of becoming discouraged so much that you quit. That you quit. And the last thing that I want to hit on is that in verse 16, the workers reorganized again by dividing responsibilities. Half worked and others had kept watch. Those who worked with one hand pushing a wheelbarrow and on the other hand carried a weapon. And they worked together as a team, one of the best things that we can do is come together as a team. One of the best things that we can do is take arm in arm and say, you know what? I might feel bad right now, but if I put my arm around somebody else and bring them alongside with me and say, I need help. I need somebody to lift me up. And when you're down, I'm going to pick you up. And when I'm down, I need you to pick me I need you to pick me up. The last thing that I want to hit on is that, that we have to remember who God is in our life. The last thing to, to combat discouragement is that you have to remember who the God of your salvation is. After looking at everything over and over and over and sensing the discouragement within his team, Nehemiah rallied the troops in verse 14. He says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord. Don't worry about Tobiah. Don't worry about Sambalot or whatever his name was. Don't worry about them. It doesn't even matter what his name is. All that matters is that the Lord God of our salvation, Jehovah, is great and mighty and he is awesome. Nehemiah knew that even in the face of opposition, that the success of the wall was wholly dependent upon God who inspired it at the beginning. The only way that the wall was going to be built is if God helped them build the wall. I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to forget God when things get tough. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's easy to forget who God is and the strength of His might when things get rough. Sometimes I need to be reminded that He's always there for me. That He's never left me. That He's never left my side. That there's not been one time in my life that He's walked away. Sometimes I need to be reminded that God is more able to deal with my discouragement than me 
on my own. And I'll end with this verse. And I, I love what Asaph in Psalms chapter 73 verse, verse 626 says. He says that my flesh and my heart may fail. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And my portion forever. Let's all stand right now. Some of you may be feeling like you're discouraged tonight. Some of you may be feeling like you've been battling some things in this world. But I challenge you to look beyond the discouragement. I challenge you to look beyond the trials that you're in. And say, though my heart may fail, the God that I serve holds my heart. And He will not fail. He will not fail. He has not failed me yet. Has He failed you yet? Has the Lord failed you yet? I don't believe He has. We're going down to the river.